This whole world wild and hard and weird on top. Welcome to Now Playing's Wild at Heart retrospective series. Rockin' good news. Part of the Now Playing David Lynch review series. For me, it's a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom. Hosted by Stuart. The way your head works is God's own private mystery. Jacob. Going to dance with the devil under the pale moonlight. And Arnie. My dog barks some. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we continue looking at all of David Lynch's films. Don't mind if I fucking do. And join Stuart, Arnie, and Jacob at NowPeakingPodcast.com for reviews of every episode of the Twin Peaks series. I'm making my lunch! These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Santos, I'm having second thoughts. Guess what? There's no turning back, remember? Listener discretion is advised. Okay, it's done. The show must begin. Today we're discussing Dance with the Devil, or as it's known internationally, Perdita Durango. Starring Javier Bardem, Rosie Perez, Harley Cross, Amy Graham, Screamin' Jay Hawkins, and James Gandolfini, directed by Alex de la Iglesia. This is the now playing co-host who goes as fast as a baby in a blender, Arnie. Stewart in LA. This is Jacob, and well, the truth is, I'm a podcaster. All right, Stuart, we didn't need to do this movie, right? I mean, when we did Quentin Tarantino, we didn't do the spinoff of Jackie Brown that had the Michael Keaton character. We didn't do 40 Django things. We're doing a Lynch retrospective. I, why are we watching Perdita Durango? Well, we did do the sci-fi TV movies of Dune. I mean, we had an extra week, and I was curious. I mean, the world was not begging for more Wild at Heart. It did fairly dismally at the box office. 14 million, which is not bad for a little indie movie, but considering all the hype that was behind it and the fact that Twin Peaks was on fire at that time, it should have done better than it did. And I do feel like its reputation over time, as things like True Romance and Natural Born Killers came out, it just got lost in the shuffle. People were not thinking about what is happening with Sailor and Lula years later. <laughs> but I do believe that Barry Gifford, the author of the book Perdita Durango, was thinking about Hollywood when he wrote it. That he said, you know, if David Lynch made my novel and he's dating the actress that played Perdita Durango, how do I get him back to do more? Well, I'll just write a whole book without Sailor and Lula, the only one in the saga that's like that, and I'll make her the central character. And I, I literally believe that is why we have the novel that we have. And the reason why Lynch and Rossellini didn't make it, they broke up. <laughs> and she's not Hispanic. <laughs> well, no, I, that didn't stop him the first time. But the fact that David Lynch wasn't taking her phone calls anymore and she had to go to therapy and run back into the arms of Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Salacious. I had no idea. Yeah, no, it was a pretty hard breakup. He he won the Palm d'Or at Cannes, kissed her in public, went back to the hotel room and said, you know, Isabella, I don't think it's working out. <laughs> and uh, 
Oh. Yeah. I mean, here he was on top of the world and taking this moment. Honestly, if, if we're gossiping, I believe he had started an affair with Julie Cruz on Twin Peaks and he was just moving on. But, you know, that's just me telling tales at school. The point is they were in no position to work creatively with each other, even though when Barry Gifford conceived of it, this was going to be irresistible to David Lynch. If they were still a couple, of course he would want to make a sequel where his lover would be the central figure. But Barry Gifford will continue to work with Lynch. We're going to talk about him when we talk about Hotel Room and Lost Highway. He worked on those scripts, but uh, he had to go to someone other than Lynch to get Perdita Durango eventually made in 1997. That does explain a semi-truck full of fetuses that was written just for Lynch. I was wondering, like, what did Lynch bring to the table here? I think that's why I think this is an interesting exercise, at least. What does Lynch bring to the table, and what is because of this author who's writing these books? I'll agree with that. I saw some parallels watching this movie and Wild at Heart, where stuff that I thought was pure Lynch... now. Jacob, you said you think Gifford is writing for Lynch, and I'm trying to decide if this is just Gifford's thing and some of the stuff that we thought was Lynchian came from the book. Stuart, I'll have to listen to your books and nachos to find out. But why did they make this movie? If it's not Lynch and Rosalini, why make Perdita Durango at all? Was the book a hit? I don't think so. I don't get the sense that Barry Gifford has ever been a best-selling author. I think the only notoriety he has with the public are the Sailor and Lula characters because of Wild at Heart. And I think that's why he chose to write so many of those novels was that it became kind of like a meal ticket, honestly. But he was also a poet. He wrote essays. He uh, wrote critical analysis of other writers and actors and directors. And he has a large body of work written. But I think that he kept coming back to this well and pushing for this story specifically. He even made a graphic novel of this particular novel because, again, I think that he thought that he could get Lynch to make it. And when that didn't happen, why this got made? Well, he took it to international audiences. That there was a producer in 1993 that paid him some money for the rights. And that producer had the idea that he was going to bring Spanish directors to America. That really in 93, maybe the only Spanish director you could name was Pedro Almodovar. He was like the big celebrity. But there was a whole lot of talent over there in Europe. And they were itching to get in there. The whole Latin explosion started happening with music. They wanted that to happen in the movies as well. And so they tried a couple different directors. It's interesting to note that who ended up directing this movie is not who they started with. They started with uh, Biga Luna, who made a film I enjoyed, almost put it in the book, called Anguish, with uh, Tangina from Poltergeist cutting people's eyes out. And he made lots of other movies. Golden Balls, which is, yes, about exactly what you think. Hamon, Hamon. Uh, he makes these wild, fantastical, well, kind of like this story. Crazy, magical, realist kind of stuff. He would have been perfect for it. And he had a dream cast lined up. I mean, he had Dennis Hopper in the DEA role. He had Johnny Depp as the Santa Rhea witch doctor. And believe it or not, Madonna was going to play Perdita Durango. You know, she was doing that whole I'm Latin phase and ended up doing Evita instead. But that project did fall apart. Yeah, she's Italian, right? Yeah, exactly. Italian-Spanish. <laughs> it's the same thing. And it's also worth pointing out that Spanish is not Mexican, but they had their own learning curve when the Spanish director came here. But the guy that got that lucky gig was Alex de Iglesias, who is a director in his own right. I haven't seen many of his films, 
But for the past 20 years, he has assembled a, a much beloved canon of films that are crazy. He, wor- he started out working as an art director for Pedro Almodovar. If you've seen any of his films, you know they're art directed very, very well. And he helped discover Bardem, bring him over here. This was his big break into Hollywood, his first English language film. I'm shocked that Bardem ever got another job with the haircut he has in this film. Uh, You know what? But think about it. I mean, no country for old men. He's got the Sam Jackson thing. I'm only going to do it if I can look fucked up in it. I mean, I do feel (laughs) like, man, he sure has fun in a mullet and blood all over his face. It is certainly a memorable part. And yeah, I could see why for an international audience, you might consider... Keep in mind, the 90s was full of this kind of stuff. Violence, all the Tarantino ripoffs. I could see that there being a big market for this. I could see why Madonna and some of these big names would circle it, and I can see why they would walk away, too, and do other things. Now, just remind me, when did Natural Born Killers come out? I know we talked about that last week, but... 94. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is coming out three years later, because, wow. It's at the tail end of all of it. I mean, things to do in Denver when you're dead was even out by this point. I mean... All of that Tarantino ripoff stuff was out there, and this was just the Spanglish version of that. Yeah, I find it very interesting that we have Rosie Perez with her career kind of on the way down by this point. I think she was starting to falter with White Man Can't Jump, a movie I like, and I like her in it, but I didn't see much of her after that. Rosie Perez, kind of a controversial choice. You know, here in white America, where I live, you know, it's easy to be like, oh, a Puerto Rican is a Mexican is a Spaniard, but... uh That is not how these various communities see it. And this movie was quite controversial in that it took a Spanish director and people with different ethnicities trying to say something about the U.S.-Mexican border, when in fact nobody working on this was exactly Mexican. Well, I had never heard of it until you put it on the schedule. I think I gave a little bit of resistance, but finally gave in because I didn't have a better suggestion to fill the week. (laughs) And I like Rosie Perez and White Men Can't Jump and Javier Bardem. I like him, you know, after I saw No Country for Old Men and everything after that. But I didn't even know he was working in the 90s. Yeah, he was in a Pedro Almodovar movie the same year, Live Flesh, is where I discovered him. And yeah, he was he was a rising star. But certainly this movie did not put him on the map. It would take several more years before I think anyone would notice him. But I'm glad he's here. I'll put it that way. I think he brings something to the part. And I think that, yeah, if you were a fan of the movie last week and I'm on a podcast with two people that gave it green arrows, I'd think you'd want to know how a different director would handle the same kind of material. I can't say I was itching to know what happened to Isabella Rossellini after the credits rolled. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. She was not the most compelling facet of that film, or even the 20th. But she was the one that was uh, dating David Lynch, so they wrote the story for her. And she is a badass. I do feel like the way that she's portrayed here, they very much make her a living legend, a a larger-than-life mythical character. Arnie, why don't you tell them what the plot is, and we can decode Perdita Durango. Yes, and for anyone who thinks this plot summary I took directly from Wikipedia, no, actually, I put my plot summary in Wikipedia because the Wikipedia article for this movie sucks. Absolutely sucks. The plot summary involved discussing Rosie Perez's outfit and never mentioning anything about the end. (laughs) 
Really? Well, I hope you didn't change all that stuff because those black fingernails are really important. You can go and read it in Wiki's history, but it says Perdita is a tough, no-nonsense lady clad in a Tura Santana-style black outfit. Nope, I just, I fixed Wiki for you. Rosie thanks you. I think that she worked harder than to be thought of about what she wore. Well, maybe you guys won't like this one better, but here it is so you can see what I put on Wiki instead. Rosie Perez plays Perdita Durango, a woman gone to Mexico to scatter the ashes of her dead sister. While in Mexico, she's picked up by bank robber Romeo De La Rosa, played by Javier Bardem. He robbed the bank to pay off his debt to loan shark Catalina. Romeo also engages in various scams, pretending to be a magical Santeria priest while snorting cocaine. And one of Romeo's latest scams is working for Mr. Santos, transporting refrigerated human fetuses to Vegas, where they will be used to make cosmetic skin cream. Perdita devises a plan that they should capture a gringo and eat him as part of Romeo's ceremonies. They randomly kidnap geeky college student Dwayne and his girlfriend Estelle. First, Perdita rapes Duane while Romeo rapes Estelle. They begin a sacrifice of Estelle, making Duane watch, but they're interrupted by a gang of men laid by a betrayed former partner of Romeo. Romeo and Perdita escape, with Duane and Estelle still their captives, and proceed to go to the meeting with Santos's people to pick up the truckload of fetuses. But the handoff is interrupted by DEA agent Woody Dumas, played by James Gandolfini. That's a hell of a run-on sentence. I welcome you to go to Wiki and fix it. All of Santos's men are killed, but Romeo escapes, driving to Vegas with Dwayne, while Perdita follows with Estelle. There's quite a bit of sex and violence, but they get to Vegas, but they've been followed the whole way by Dumas. More, the drop has become a trap for Romeo. Santos is upset about all the dead men at the pickup, so he's hired Romeo's cousin Reggie to kill Romeo at the drop-off. Romeo and his ex-Marine buddy Doug go to the drop, tipped off about the double-cross. He leaves Perdita to watch the hostages, but worried, Perdita lets them go so she can check on her lover. Reggie kills Doug, and Perdita arrives just in time to see Reggie shoot and kill Romeo. Perdita kills Reggie, and then flees as the cops bust in, led by Woody, intending to bust the men, but instead finding them all dead. Alone now, Perdita walks the Vegas Strip alone, mourning Romeo, as credits roll. Now this isn't the first movie we've ever reviewed that has multiple cuts, but it has an extraordinary amount of different cuts. And no, I did not watch them all. I would have to have watched this movie eight different times. Which one did you see? I have a simple rule for determining that. When the title sequence came up, what did it say? Mine said Dance with the Devil and looking at the Wikipedia, I saw the shortest American cut. Okay, so it was like a really cheap video toaster? Yes. Yes. <laughs> That is the American rated version. If you had watched the unrated American version, there would have been like a fetus dangling off a much better looking credits. But because that was so offensive to people, they quickly made some cheap credits to cover up the idea of a, of a dead baby hanging from an umbilical cord from Dance of the Devil. I was really wondering why that opening title was so bad. bad. I'm like, like, oh, what am I in for with this thing? This is bad. Legitimately, I've seen pornography with better opening titles, so I thought I was really pissed. I know I made you watch like eight Children of the Corn movies, Stuart, but I thought this was your revenge. (laughs) 
No, it's not my revenge, but it was a cheap concession when they realized that even the title sequence wasn't going to get past the MPAA. And so, yes, that is the way to determine it. I do feel like most people here in America are going to see that. It is not the longest version. There is no definitive version. The longest version is two hours and six minutes. It's the German version. The Spanish one is two hours and four minutes. The unrated is two hours and two minutes. The rated version that I think we all saw is two hours. And then there is an Australian and a UK version that edits out a lot of the gore and violence. I have become aware of what's in all of the different versions. And in a lot of cases, uh, the shorter versions are running away from the violence. And the American versions are dealing with copyright issues. And we'll talk about that when we get into the movie. At least they were able to keep the song Camel Walk in. I mean, my God, I forgot about that song's existence. I raced to Amazon and bought it. The music done here is uh, by uh, the British New Wave artist who also did Demoni 2, Simon Boswell. A lot of famous, if not famous, returning folks. We have seen almost everyone in this cast before in some capacity. Or would see them again. I mean, I guess Gandolfini had done True Romance. Yeah, no, I just mean, like, in our covering of movies, we've seen a lot of these people at work here. And then it is not the case, and we've done this too, where everyone involved never worked again. <clears throat> Mangler 3. <laughs> I don't think we've ever seen Screaming Jay Hawkins, though. I don't know if you know who he is. Oh, yes, I do. But a blues musician. Yeah, I was super excited when I saw his name. My wife is a huge blues fan, and we had actually been talking about him the night before I watched this. So his name came up, and I got real excited. That's as weird as the Herb Albert reference that comes up twice here. <laughs> But we begin on the border with Perdita. The fattest cheetah I've ever seen. Yeah, she's having a nightmare that she is being attacked by uh, cheetah. That, yes, in the more unrated cuts, you would get to see more of Rosie Perez or at least her body double. Oh, it wasn't really her? I was wondering, because she really had a problem with the nudity Spike Lee had her do on Do the Right Thing. She's had a no nudity clause ever since. She doesn't go nude here, but she shows a ton of skin. She's like right on that verge. Yeah, in the unrated version, she shows the skin. Or her body double does. Yeah, well, in this bedroom scene. I mean, I'm not sure we really need this scene other than it's atmospheric. It's a really striking, evocative image. It should reassure you that you're not watching a really cheap, low-budget, awful film when you see it. But uh, all it really tells me is she's about to tangle with a wild animal. And in fact, the, the person that she's going to get mixed up in is a man who reputedly can turn into a jaguar. He has magical powers. And, and towards the end, she's going to ask Dwayne, the gringo that they kidnap, you know, have you ever thought what it'd be like to be eaten by a wild animal so yeah i, I guess it kind of comes and ties back but it's something i forget about by the end no there's some drawings near the end too where you see a fat cheetah and i'm like oh they're saying that this why you gotta fat shame the cheetah because <laughs> they're supposed to be fast <laughs> this one's in captivity man it's a it's a movie cheetah i bet you he's faster than you he may not be the fastest <laughs> cheetah but he could get your ass that's true I'm not going to say he couldn't, but just because he's such an oddly shaped cheetah, then when I see a drawing of an oddly shaped cheetah later on, I realize they're basically saying she's having a premonition about Romeo. Yeah, but she's really in an airport. Uh, 
I'm not sure if it's Mexico or America, but it's somewhere on that border. And she's being propositioned by some nerd that's going to a convention in Arizona. And hey, just because he's a software salesman doesn't mean he's a nerd. <laughs> I take offense to that. Well, just because she's Mexican doesn't mean that she's cheap and willing to jump in the bed with him. And I think she has a little fun with him here by, by turning the tables. He's like thinking that she's going to be hireable for sexual favors. And she's like, oh, no, you can be my pimp. We'll split half of it. I'll go with you to your stupid convention and we'll take them all. I don't know. He was offering to hire her. I thought he was just trying to pick her up. And she had this offer. And I couldn't even tell the way Rosie Perez played it if she was serious or if she was fucking with him. Yeah, I, she was fucking with him, but it could. Let me put it this way. As in the expression... In kidding, there's truth. I do feel like if he actually went for it, she probably would because she is an opportunist. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you, Stuart. I did feel like Arnie that this was just a guy away from his family, maybe uh, on the prowl looking to get some strange since he's at this convention and that he approaches her. And then she's like, yeah, totally into it. Let's go crazy. And that's what freaks him out. Yeah, I think she would have gone with them. And I mean, we'll see. She's going to go with Romeo later. And I think that's the first time they meet. Like she's looking to do something crazy. But she is grieving here and and. We get it early, but I think we get it more towards the end that she had a sister named Juana, and it is not played by Grace Zabriskie, and she is not a crazy voodoo New Orleans hitman. She's just a normal woman raising two children in a trailer, and her husband freaked out and shot her and the kids. And now Perdita is going to Mexico to dump the ashes. Now, this is something we're shown in flashback. This movie has a lot of flashbacks that basically seem like diversions. I knew this was based on a book, and sometimes I could almost feel like a novelist style coming through the screen instead of a screenwriter style. But I thought this explains perfectly what the hell was going on with Crispin Glover last film. The author just likes strange flashbacks. Yeah, you're absolutely right, is that... Almost every page is its own chapter, and the impressions you get are episodic. That if they're not flashbacks, they're just, yeah, they jump around in time, they're non-chronological, and they're just little moments, and there's no strong narrative arc to construct here. I, I pity anyone that is going to do the screenwriting duties. And this is, at least initially, Barry Gifford, the author of the book, he did do the first draft of this script, and then the director and his guys came in and, and did some major tweaks. It's not the same entirely, but I do think it captures the spirit of how many characters blow in and out. I mean, I think I mentioned on Wild at Heart that this is a author that likes happenstance, likes random things happening, is is more amused by little moments in life and is not trying to tell big tragedies and, and big dramatic moments. Yeah, while well, I'm looking for themes in this movie, I don't know if I'm quite finding them, but there is, you know, again, jumping ahead a little bit, there's going to be a father who's all who's saying, always be in control. And then later he's like, you can't be in control. And that seems to be like this idea that you cannot be in control. The world is chaotic. So when you have this flashback, and there is no real reason, if I feel like that Perita's sister is killed. It's just her husband went crazy and kills her and then shoots himself. Like, there is no reason to it. It's just this out of control moment. He was a violent man. 
she should have never been mixed up with him. And I think Perdita feels like if she were there, she could have taken him. You know, she's a badass and we will see that. I mean, she will, the next scene, she's literally breaking into a car. She's smashing into the windshield and, and hot wiring a car to drive to the cemetery and dump these ashes. She brings along two little girls to tell this story more for our benefit than the little girls. These little girls were holding her up, right? They had masks on and guns. Like, this was a botched robbery. Kind of. I'm not sure how serious it was, but uh, yes, maybe. Uh, they didn't seem too threatening, but uh, I think those were toy guns. But yeah, I think they would have taken her money if she would have given it to them. But this is Perdita Durango, and she don't play that. This is also the first introduction of Romeo. He is actually their grave robbing. Yeah, that was him. Okay, I only watched this movie once but I didn't get a good look, and Javier Bardem looks very different in this movie with his, <laughs> what is that, 90s rocker haircut? Is he, like, gonna sing Lightning Strikes? That was never in style. No one had that haircut. <laughs> no rocker would ever have that hairstyle. That is, yeah, that is voodoo hair. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured he was the group. I didn't recognize him there, but there's this fat guy. I guess I'm fat shaming now, but that we'll see later on that hangs out with Romeo. And so I figured, okay, he, he must have been there too. That There's that connection. Yeah, we will find out that this character practices Santeria and does things with corpses that in the cut I saw anyway, you see pretty extensively what he will do, that he will hack off limbs and throw it in boiling water and spit blood on people. And it can be fairly graphic in some of the other cuts. You won't see all that, but he is stealing bodies for those ceremonies. Yeah, I did see the cut where he's hacking up the body and spitting the blood. Now, I do have a question. They make a big point in this movie that Santeria is not voodoo. Do either of you know what Santeria is? My wife explained it. She lived in Mexico for a bit. She speaks Spanish. It, it is, pardon me, listeners, if I'm not getting 100% right, but you are like praying to a saint of death, like the saint of evil, to get that kind of protection. Like... If anyone watched Breaking Bad, there's a moment where people are worshiping Santeria as they're going out to try to do hits. It's just like, that is the saint of criminals. My understanding is some of it's geographic. I thought Santeria came from Cuba and like voodoo is more like Jamaica and Haiti. All right. I mean, I just read it as like voodoo stuff. So it worked for me for my interpretation, but. It is. It's witchcraft. It's sorcery. Now, I have a question for you guys. I know when I read the story, it was very clear that this was a man that didn't believe that he had magical powers, was actually selling these services to mobsters for money. Because mobsters are superstitious, they pay him to spit blood on them and do all of that. And he does that. So that's sort of his gig. You know, that is his racket. But here in this movie, I feel like they're telling me that Bardem believes it. He believes his hype and that he does this because he needs to. Yeah, I thought he was totally into it. Like, he'll do this whole thing, I'm a scientist and I believe in science. I feel like he's mocking it, that kind of opinion, that he is superstitious. And when they're going over the border at one point and he's got stolen money and a body in the car, he, like, takes that Santeria necklace and puts it on the tarp and the Border Patrol guy just lets him go through, and he's like, see, it works. He knew what he was doing with the ceremonies was bullshit, but there was superstition in him. He wasn't sure how much bullshit he was spewing. It's honestly, as an agnostic, something I feel myself. I may not go to church on Sundays and believe every word of the Bible, 
but I believe something, and I'm certainly trying to follow some kind of religious law. And you know, I I throw salt over my shoulder if I spill it. What What about dancing around with blood on your face and cocaine? <laughs> That's just a Saturday night, Jacob. There's nothing okay. religious. That's just a party. Yeah, he's been doing. He did that way before Bardim. Bardim's copying Arnie. <laughs> But yeah, I hear what you're saying here. It is an interesting character, and I really do feel like it's the best character in this movie. I don't know that I like Perdita, at least as portrayed by Rosie Perez or Isabella Rossellini, if you want to be honest. On the page, I saw that she had a lot of spunk. And also on the page, I saw that she never really cared about anything. She was amoral, and that she does not fall in love with Romeo. But here... I feel like this movie takes a turn. For half of it, we see two completely amoral people that hang out with each other to see who is actually more corrupt. And then at some point, they take a turn and they really try to sell us that if these guys aren't redeemable, they're at least not as bad as some of the people around them. And they try to make them more of heroes. Yeah, it's natural born killers, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Last week, we kept talking about comparing Wild at Heart to natural born killers. Here we have it. To me, this is Mickey and Mallory. I mean, if you recall a natural born killers, Mickey fucks a hostage and Mallory has some guy eat her out on the hood of a car. The fact that they're not faithful to me just shows that they're perfect for each other because they're both equally fucked up. I mean, when somebody says, hey, let's grab a gringo and eat him in a magical ceremony and the other person says, yes, stop looking. You found your match. Don't swipe left. <laughs> You're right. That is a special. I don't know if eHarmony puts you together in that way. That is. That's a lucky connection that they have here. But they don't uh, meet joyfully. I don't know that you could impress Perdita. When they first meet, she is at another cafe on the border, and he's doing his best to woo her with that hair. And, yeah, I'm not sure exactly why she gets in the truck with him. Maybe it's the rattleskin boots. Yeah, I think it's, here's someone, she's going to say something crazy, and he's going to be like, yeah, let's do it. Unlike that software guy in Arizona who got freaked out, like, I think, yeah, she's looking for someone that wants to be crazy with her. And he has money. I mean, he did just rob a bank. We see in another flashback that uh, he was at the bank with his partner, Shorty D, who we've seen before. Beyond Reanimator, he was the druggie in the Spanish prison. Very fun role. He was one of the most fun characters in there. Yeah, and and here, I don't know that he totally gets betrayed, but I think he's frustrated because Romeo is making the bank teller open up her shirt and, and lingering when they should be running down the street. He does get betrayed because they're robbing to pay back another gangster, Catalina. They owe him some money, and Romeo is going to just take it all and knock Shorty D out and run away with it. Isn't it both their debt? I mean, if he's paying it down, does that mean that uh, they're still coming for Shorty D? I, I got the sense that it was uh, that they had borrowed this money together. And so if he paid the mobster, that it would help the other guy. It, it didn't feel like the kind of betrayal I normally see. That's what I took it as, though, is they borrowed the money together. They were doing this job to pay him back together. And then Romeo fled and is like, you take the rap. I'll take the cash. 
and they weren't even sure if it was enough to pay him back because the interest was incredible. It had jumped $3,000 in just a couple days. And so he decided to run to America and hide from Catalina and leave his friend there to take the fall. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that's what we're supposed to think. But it, it felt a little muddy, and it's not in the book. This is something of the later screenwriters came in and invented this, contrived this as a, a reason. In fact... In the story, it is Romeo who has all the money, and he goes collecting. Later, when he goes to see Catalina, he's going to collect money. He's not going to pay a debt. Yeah, I read this as Romeo was just going to take off with the money, not even pay Catalina back. He was doing this just to get more money to party and, I don't know, do Santeria or whatever. Pick up Perdita. Take him back to the ranch. Yeah, she is the kind of woman that was able to be picked up by the fact that he didn't need donations. And yeah, he does have Screaming Jay Hawkins as his sidekick. That was kind of fun. Yeah, as Adolfo, is he playing a Mexican here? Because he's not Mexican either. I was wondering if he was supposed to be Cuban and, and have that voodoo. It's difficult to quantify. He's certainly not Mexican, but Latin, perhaps. I mean, I you'd have to get out genealogy trees in order to know that kind of thing. <laughs> but he is the wacky sidekick, the local color, and uh, not around enough, frankly, for my taste. I do feel like I would have liked to have him on the journey uh, when Romeo takes the assignment to transport, well, now it's fetuses, but in the original story, it was just placentas. So I think they're trying to be more edgy, right? Uh, by having dead babies, a truck full of refrigerated dead babies, it's pretty edgy. I agree with you that there wasn't enough of him. I feel like this should have been like Wild at Heart was last week. We drop away from a lot of these characters. I think we could have had a lot of fun if we focused on more people trying to track down Romeo and Perdita. Instead, this guy's going to come back later, about halfway through the movie, and I'm going to have to, like, take a moment to really realize what the hell's going on. I thought some day-ass machina was going on, and then I realized, oh, that betrayed partner at the beginning actually had a point to the plot. If we had seen him also on the trail, I mean, you mentioned a lot of those other movies, things to do in Denver when you're dead. So many of them have people on the run from not one mobster, but a shit ton of people. I think that would have made this more fun. Yeah, I don't feel like we're without characters. I mean, I feel like there's plenty of them here. And this is an invented character purely for the screen that you're talking about. Shorty D, the partner from the bank robbery. Would it have been better to have more of him? I don't know that that's true. But what I will say is this. I do feel like this movie needs to be livelier than it is. There is something about it that is trying to break free and be irreverent and have fun. And I think it's more successful at that than the Lynch film, which got so bogged down in its, in its miserable supporting characters. But here, maybe the problem is that all the heavy lifting is being done by Bardem and Rosie Perez... She does get the kidnapping victims. I don't feel like she does a whole lot in this movie, but she is the one to finally get the gringos in the truck. I had a technical problem that prevented me from enjoying this movie as much as I should. And that is, some of the movie's in Spanish, and yeah, there are subtitles during those scenes, but some of it's in English, but between Javier's accents and the accent Rosie Perez is affecting, I mean, she's from Brooklyn, right? So she's just 
trying to do a little bit of a voice. I had to turn subtitles on for this whole movie. I understood all the American characters fine, but I really had trouble understanding a lot of what they said. And when he goes off on tangents about being in the war and about his grandmother and all that, I'm reading it and I had to just realize that about 20 minutes in, that that was my only way to really get this movie. Even Spanish speakers had that complaint when the movie came out. They said they could not understand Bardem's accent. He's not Mexican. And yeah, he was speaking in a way that was just, it was not translating in English or in Spanish. That said, I still think he's fun to watch. Yeah, I don't have a problem with him. Do I understand every single word he says in this movie? No, but I'm able to follow along. And, you know, I was worried when I put this DVD in. I'm like, okay, what's this about? I didn't want the whole plot. But, you know, you read the two-sentence summary, like on IMDb, just to get an idea. And it's like talking about Santeria, human sacrifice, rape. I'm like, oh, man. Is this really the movie I want to watch on a Friday night? But I, I do feel like, especially because Javier Bardem, just the way he plays his character, that... It does feel lighter than a lot of the content that we'll see in this first half. That That's pretty gruesome. But, you know, like when they're going out and Perdita wants to find a, a white couple to kill and eat. Like, I love the way Javier is going around and like grabbing like different gringos. and like, is this the one? Is this the one? Like, I, th- there is some fun there. Like, I thought this was going to be much more dour than it ended up being. Agreed completely, Jacob. I laughed out loud several times in this movie in that it is so in your face, gross with violence, hard with sex. I mean, like rape and really uncomfortable things. But then it's going to turn around and make me laugh out loud. Like, I know Lynch added in the dog eating the hand in Wild at Heart, but that kind of humor permeates this film and it's working for me. And I think Rosie Perez is giving a really good performance. She's not just playing the character type I've associated her with. I buy her as wanting to eat a gringo. (laughs) Yeah, what we're talking about is Barry Gifford's taste for dark humor. And yeah, he didn't invent it. There have been people that do it before and since, but it is the sensibility of his writing. And you saw it in Lynch. I mean, in lighter moments, like when Lula is saying... My mom tried to get me to talk about sex when I was 15, and then Sailor goes, but honey, you told me you were raped at 13. I mean, these are, that is how they are taking dark subject matter and making light with it. And it is bad taste. Some people will not find it funny, but it is where this movie lies. So if you are amused by dark humor, yeah, I think it's fairly successful during these moments. I think one of the things that Iglesias is doing is giving more freedom for these characters to talk. They're not constantly moving down the road or cutting to other weird characters. It's not as distracted and frazzled. And I feel like there's better monologues here. And when they do cut to other characters, like James Gandolfini as Dumas, this DEA agent, we first see him, he's at that Santeria ritual with a camera hidden filming it, and now he's following them around, uh, I believe they're in Susie, Texas. But, like, yeah, he's walking down the street and just gets hit by a car, and, like, they just feel like we're going to beat up James Gandolfini throughout this film, and it's done for humor. He's totally wily e. Coyote, right? Because you can't yes. kill him, but he's going to fly in the air getting hit by a car, and he's going to get beat up time and time again, and he's 
just keeps coming back with a neck brace and a few more cuts. But I mean, yes, it takes me out because later on, we'll talk about a character who gets hit by a car and actually dies. I didn't think that was this kind of movie. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's keeping focus like these side characters. Like we're wild at heart. You know, we're going to go to Jingle Dell and this character and that character, Reindeer. Here, you know, they, it's a much narrowed down cast. And I just, I think it works better that way. Yeah, and this is the sensibility of the director. Iglesias does uh, the movie I saw, The Last Circus, which is about... I mean, I guess it was about a, a troop of clowns that turn on one another. It, it was about a lot of things. But the the main character takes a whole lot of pummeling. He does like abusive, bloody physical comedy. I, I do feel like that's what he does best here. So I think that he would have liked to have had more of that, honestly. One of his complaints on the set was they kept wanting to turn Perdita and Romeo into these hero types. And he's not interested in heroes. He likes to see people suffer. He likes to see the darker sides of things. And so he was at constantly at odds with the producers on how to portray these main characters. Yeah, I think they got a good balance here because they're likable villainy. At first, I feel like there's two sides of it. At the beginning, they're really, really immoral. I mean, when they take these kids here, I mean, the idea that they're debating in front of them, which one should we eat? And making them vote on it. You don't find that funny? Okay, that is funny. And then that they have Screaming Jay Hawkins come break the 2-2 tie. Of course I find it funny. What I'm saying is the first half is funny. And then in the second half, they become moralistic. That we see her thinking about her dead sister. And I should have been there. And we see him thinking about his you know, grandmother's house getting burned down. They they do things in the second half to try and justify why they're amoral. In the first half of this movie, they just say, these guys are bad and we love it. Yeah, I don't know if I love it. Again, this is a scary situation. We have this college-age couple, Dwayne and Estelle. Did you recognize? No. Star of the Fly 2, Harley Cross? <laughs> He's all grown up now. Oh, you mean the kid? Eric Stoltz? Yeah, yeah. What? He does kind of look like <laughs> Eric Stoltz, too. That's what's kind of amazing about him. I'm like, yeah, I can see it. And the girl, she's not quite as talented as her sister, but uh, Heather Graham's sister. Okay, yeah, she had that look. She's just as talented as her sister. No, 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 she's not. And that is not a compliment to Heather Graham. <laughs> We're talking about that over on Now Peaking, so you can hear that discussion there. But yeah, I'm finding all of this to be a lot of fun. I don't know if they're really going to eat them. This movie is such that I could see them eating one of these kids. I believe Perdita wants to eat someone. I believe her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Here's where I'm at as someone that read the book. At some point, they decide that it's too much to kill them. So they get a little boy instead from a local village. And they do. They literally carve up a little boy, tear out his art, and eat it. And I'm thinking, wow, are they really going to do that to these characters? I think it's to this movie's credit, its unhinged quality, that we believe they're capable of it. This is maybe a Hollywood movie, but it's not playing by typical Hollywood rules. It's playing by Tarantino rules. This is slicing the ear off kind of suspense. And funny, yeah. I mean, when they're covered in feathers and dust and forced to turn on one another and... I really do wonder about the romantic couplings, too, because these kids are rather virginal. One is a virgin. Estelle has never had sex before, and the boy, I think, has only been with 
a prostitute or, or it seemed like an unpleasant experience. I don't think she was a prostitute, but you don't No, I don't. I think it was like, I think she was from that porno shoot from wild at heart. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. She's from big tuna, Texas. Yeah. She was cover girl material for hippos. Yeah, I thought it was just the bad luck of being at lowest common denominator sex. But that was that was one of the uncomfortable scenes of the film. I'll go with that. But here they're going to learn about sex. Yes, they're going to be sexually assaulted. You could use the word rape. I did. <laughs> Not unlike how Lula was, her curiosity would sometimes have her going along with assault. I do feel like these virgins... Now that they realize there's no escape for them, are trying to make the most of it. Yeah, all that stuff you're saying about Lula and Wild at Hearts, at least in the book, I do get that in this film with Estelle. Like, again, it, it's not a fun rape scene, but there's a rape scene. But later on, Dwayne's going to accuse her. Oh, I saw you getting into it. You shook your ass. Like, they are going to play into this almost Stockholm Syndrome. Like, Dwayne, again, this is a sexist view of mine, but he's a dude. So, of course, he's, like, enjoying getting with Perdita when she's doing her rape stuff. But I do feel like you get into that mindset of a hostage and how they start to fall in love with these people that have kidnapped them. I was taken back to Lula with Peru in that she really started getting into the sex and enjoying it after it was assault. And a lot of people will be upset by this scene and you know maybe movies need to start coming with trigger warnings but i'm just going where this movie's going to take me and i've just got to leave moral judgments at the door because this is a movie where you're rooting for the most violent and vile people yeah it feels like a rob zombie movie in that way i don't know if i'm rooting for him but i do find him entertaining most of the time like all the things i was worried about when i read that short description i'm like okay it's actually not as gruesome as i thought it was going to be i'm still not like yeah these are great heroes and i want them to win out in the end but i i get what you're saying like i do feel when they explore sexual assault in this film it's actually got a whole lot more meaning than when lynch did it with wild at heart yeah i mean we are to be uncomfortable and this won't be everyone's cup of tea as you pointed out and maybe we are terrible for laughing at this but i think what we're laughing about is not the reality of the situation it doesn't feel like a stark horrific lynchian nightmare it feels like farce we wonder how bad is it going to get for everyone. And I don't think there is a likable character here. The DA agents, the sheriff, the bad guys, even these kidnapped victims, all of them seem like people that I wouldn't want to hang out with on any given day. But I am curious to know what they're going to do to one another. And I think that's why we have permission to laugh. In satire, you're allowed to not like any of the people and still enjoy their misery. And I kind of like the fact that Estelle is the tougher one, that, you know, she's always the one trying to escape. She knocks out Screaming Jay Hawkins with a Mickey Mouse statue. and Which gets the third vote against her, though. Bad move if you're running for office or something. <laughs> yeah, I know. It does come back on her <laughs> when she gets caught. But she is kind of frustrated because, yeah, the dude is just, you know, he is being complicit. He's sitting there listening to 
Romeo talk about the how he's basically just a lamb, uh, you know, anti-Christian sentiments about martyrdom and sacrifice. And, and she's a fighter. She is more like Perdita. She wants to fight back. She just doesn't have the guts to pull the trigger. And we see that with her father when in their introduction scene. Dwayne is going to pick up a still at her home and her parents are there. And the father, again, I, I think they're poking fun at this, you know, white suburban tough machismo male. And he's like, you always be in control. And he, he's kind of just this old guy and probably hasn't been challenged by many. But yeah, I, I feel like she's got her father in her. She's been raised with that attitude. So she is the tough one. And that father is just a crazy character. From the mouth trumpet of her back. Albert in the house when Dwayne is picking Estelle up to the fact that he's going to go on the hunt. He's going to be this movie's Johnny and try to find them on his own and rescue them. And it's not going to go well. Not for him. Not really for anyone. Even the lawmen we're supposed to like. We do go back to Dumas. James Gandolfini tries to hook up with local law enforcement in Texas. And we get... Uh, yeah, what what feels like obsessive Lynchian characters. There's Sheriff Ford who has a framed photo of Ava Gardner and likes, you know, getting blowjobs while looking at it. And his dorky nephew who's the deputy. I, yeah, I feel like I can see the movie that David Lynch would make, but I feel like what I'm watching is truer to the spirit of the novel. Yeah, I, I'm feeling that too. Like, I wonder if Lynch stick to just original material, perhaps. Like, I haven't liked his adaptations of books as much with Dune and Wild at Art. Like, I do feel like maybe he gets lost there, and this is just a better translation of the source material. Again, watching this retroactively, I have a new view of Wild at Heart, and I don't know that I'll read this guy's books, especially if there's eight in the series. But I really like watching on screen this morbid humor play out and just so much slapstick. I mean, they're playing Herb Albert earlier, and this whole thing's going to play like a Benny Hill to a degree. Like, if Benny Hill liked to kill and eat people. Yeah, Tarantino. <laughs> I mean, I think about the way Stuck in the Middle with You is used. That's mm. kind of how Spanish Flea is here. And not all of it is successful. I mean, just because Barry Gifford did it before Tarantino does not mean that he's doing it better. This dialogue is not as sharp it doesn't have as much nuance. It doesn't reveal as much about the characters as I feel like Tarantino would. But as second-rate, third-rate Tarantino stuff, yeah, I feel like it's doing its job. And certainly things kind of build to a climax here, kick off into the second act, when the cops are coming in during this sacrifice. As you mentioned, the old partner comes in. And, yeah, an explosion that basically they're stuck taking care of kids that didn't get sacrificed and having to go make the truck delivery. Yeah, and this surprised me. I thought, oh, th this is going to be the sacrifice. Perdita's going to finally get to eat some flesh. But no, Shorty D shows up and interrupts it. Yeah, this is where I didn't realize that was Shorty D. I thought this was just some craziness. Again, we have Romeo talking about spirituality and omens, and he's drawing those cards beforehand. I thought this was literally an intentional deus ex machina but no it's actually paying off that he betrayed someone and they're going to come back to him which is actually this whole movie is romeo getting his comeuppance for things he's done to others and notice shorty d is wearing a punisher t-shirt i did notice that and and sadly screaming jay hawkins gets shot here adolfo he's out of the film yeah 
I would have kept him around, honestly. But uh, you, you lose something without him. But there are a lot of characters, and the second half is really another road trip. And that is a thing with Barry Giffords. All of his novels involve characters at some point deciding their life will be better if they make a journey across the country. And here, it's going to be a road trip to... Well, I guess it's Vegas in the movie version. Originally, it was going to be L.A. in the book. We get a returning character from Wild at Heart. Santos shows up to hire Romeo. Yes, and Reggie. I, I don't know that you would connect Reggie. That's the same Reggie. I keep forgetting that. <laughs> yes, Reggie was the guy that was with Grace Zabriskie. You know, he was the one that I think he held the coin up to his eye at one point. He didn't get a whole lot in the final cut. Not many people do. Yeah, he gets like 30 seconds of screen time. <laughs> but he was in a lot of the extended scenes, and he was good and creepy in it. He, he could have made a really big impact in Wild at Heart. And here, he's much more of a benevolent figure because he is uh, the childhood friend and cousin of Romeo. That They grew up together on a Caribbean island. He's trying to do right by his friend by giving him this job and connecting him to Crazy Eyes Santos. But Santos is not going to forgive him. I think at first he doesn't like the idea that the Santeria ends up in so much blood and that there are DEA agents that are now investigating Santos by investigating Romeo. But things really get bad when some of his favorite operatives come to bring the truck at the rendezvous and get shot and killed. Yeah, this really isn't Romeo's fault here. I think he's getting unfairly blamed for things outside of his control, although... Well, no, he's he's murdering and sacrificing people, which has caught the DEA's eye, like... Yes, that is his fault, because his reputation is to murder gringos that are bringing in law enforcement across the border. But I also think it's not about blame, it's just... Oh, you're dangerous. You attract too much attention, and I don't want anyone finding out about my bio enterprises. Also, the entire plot take baby fetuses for skin cream. There's again something that is just so out there. I mean, it's craziness. Even the people who want to use stem cells for skin cream aren't going to think you're taking a truckload of fetuses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the black humor of this, I think, is just... Yeah, I'm, I'm saying I love it, though. Yeah, it feels like something I would read in Chuck Palahniuk or Elmore Leonard or an edgier crime novelist from the 90s. I do feel like, yeah, that's... The mission is always, let's connect all of these sordid underworlds and see what kind of crazy way that these characters can bounce off of each other. Can we have skinheads working with Santa Rhea? And, and yeah, I feel like there are certain authors that really get off on telling tall tales and, and exaggeration. Where Gifford gets in trouble is that I don't feel like he goes far enough, that his stuff ends up being closer to poetry and they're more about everyday events. And so I feel like, consequently, we don't have a crazy plot to follow. A lot of this road trip is just all chatter. There's not really that much that is happening, except in these pivotal moments where we, yeah, we get the, the shootout. And it's kind of fun to watch, you know, Romeo drive over one of the guys while Gandolfini is taking out a guy who thinks he's being told that his fly is undone. But in fact, he's being told that there's a man coming at him with a gun. Yeah, I love the way that the sheriff's like nephew or son-in-law, whoever that is, is like running and screaming like the tough guy. And of course, he's the first to go down. Of course, he goes first. Yeah, gotta go take him out right away. Yeah, and I do agree with you, Stuart. Like after this, 
when it becomes a road trip movie, oof, it comes to a halt, ironically. Like, it really starts to lose me. It, it just becomes kind of boring. They're going to sit, like, in a plane graveyard for a while, and yeah. I think the person who wrote the original wiki plot summary lost interest here, too. Because after <laughs> this, there's literally, like, one sentence. They go on the road to Vegas, and excitement happens, and that's, like, the end. <laughs> that's all you really need. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and again, I feel like something else happening with the characters, too. I get that if you're honoring Gifford, it's going to be episodic and what happens on the road may or may not mean anything but you know here at this junction shootout romeo is chasing down the sheriff and they frame him in such a way that the cactus is sort of popping out of the back of his head and give him devil horns yeah. i really feel like they're trying to make him seem like the embodiment of evil the incarnation of satan himself and they pull away from that as we go along i feel like Seeing him humbled and having to go to see Catalina and all of the goofy talk he has about his home world and Veracruz, the movie that he grew up with, all the other stuff to humanize him, I think, takes away from where the movie should keep Romeo, that he should be satanic throughout the whole thing. There's something interesting you do with Romeo. Like, they give him this backstory that he was actually a U.S. Marine. And, like, that's interesting. Like, oh, he fought for the country and now he's, you know, working against it. But the fact that most of the second half is uh, lover spouts between Perdita and Romeo and Estelle and Dwayne. Like, it's all relationship problems now. And, again, some of that stuff, I kind of go with it. I see what they're doing. But there's just too much of it. There's too long of a focus on it. I enjoy these scenes, though. Because I was really in suspense thinking Estelle and Dwayne might be eaten. And the fact that there's this kind of back and forth going on where there's a little bit of the hostage syndrome. They start to identify with their captors and they become kind of like friends, but not really. And every so often the teens get comfortable and then are smacked down into place. The threatening, the four-way jealousy that's going on. And especially when Romeo finds out that his grandmother was attacked by Catalina's people. And I really think he's going to sell Estelle. I think he's going to use Estelle to get out of debt. And he's never planning on doing that. He's going for revenge and he's going to keep Estelle with him. I'm enjoying these scenes and the fact that the dynamic has greatly changed. Yeah. And I want to compliment the additional screenwriters for molding and shaping this because it is more of a story than it reads on the page where most of the things that happen feel random, could happen at any time, involve any character. Here, I do feel like we are seeing Romeo make choices that are surprising, but Again, what I'm vocalizing is that by humanizing him, they're making him less interesting. This is, movie is called, at least in some versions, Prodita Durango. I don't feel like the focus is on her enough. And this is not her story. No, no. Yeah, it's not her story. But I like her as the impetus because she is the new person in this dynamic. Romeo was going to do whatever Romeo was going to do. And it's the fact that he gets involved with Perdita that everything really starts to spiral, that she is so crazy and 
she is going to be the witness to this. She's our point of view character, but she doesn't have much of an interesting story. Yeah, that's, I think, a mistake. But yeah, it's not a fatal one. I want to emphasize, if I'm complaining about how they're shaping the characters, I think it's still fun enough. Even in the dreary parts of the second half of the second act, I do feel like there are little moments that are enjoyable. I love seeing Damien Bashir, another actor we would see again later in Machete Kills and in Hateful Eight. Yeah, I do like when they go to see Catalina. I love they make that Batman reference for going to Dance with the Devil in the Pale Moonlight. Like this, this again... This is Dance with the Devil for me. This is not Rita Durango. This is about the devil who is Romeo. So I prefer that title because that really is the focus here. He's going to see Catalina. And I'm with you, Arnie. I thought he really was going to sell Estelle into slavery. But no, he's going to get revenge because Catalina... Did he kill his grandmother? I know he attacks the village, but he gets a letter again. So No, she wrote the letter, so she's not dead. But she lost her house. Yeah. I had the same question and I had to think about, okay, the letter's there. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. She lost her house and it was traumatic enough just to be scared in that way. I, I think that Romeo just didn't like the idea that they would shake down a grandmother in that way. Yeah, these are exciting scenes, and even more so when, when he, after he takes that guy's eyes out in probably the most graphic moment, just the way he takes that bottle to Catalina's eyes. It's the sound they use. Mm, yeah, that's that was... really intense. But then he goes out there covered in blood. You know, they're in sort of this dance hall where there's Lucador wrestling and, uh, you know, mariachi band and all. He goes on the dance floor. I never know if they're in Texas or in Mexico for so much of this because, yeah, the settings are so weird. They're in Arizona at this point. Okay, this is Arizona. Yeah. All right. (laughs) But he's covered in blood and snarling, and he takes a moment to dance on the dance floor. I'm reminded about how he stopped the bank robbery to to ogle the boobies. (laughs) I think he could actually turn into the cheetah at this point. I actually think... That he he seems to be physically transforming here on the dance floor. It's a really amazing moment. Maybe the best in the film. Yeah, no, that dance scene with Estelle, she's got blood on her and they... Yeah, she's kind of getting into it too. Yeah, it goes back to that scene in Wild at Heart where Lula can't take the radio anymore and pulls off on the side of the road and start (laughs) dancing to that speed metal. Yeah, it's a great moment. I don't know if it's been a great journey, but I do enjoy little bits of it. So even when things aren't totally working... And I think the part that's not working that well for me is the Gandolfini stuff. You know, they throw him in here and they have a hitman called the Fist that's sent after him. Santos wants to whack him and... He gets taken out very quickly. Yeah, too quickly. Yeah, it it doesn't seem to amount to much. It's not that it's bad and it's not that Gandolfini is doing a bad job. I think he's he's good. But uh, I don't know that the stuff that he's doing with the investigation and trying to find out where the truck is going really makes a whole lot of sense or is that compelling it doesn't make sense but i do find it humorous like when they're with the one agent he's like i've been doing this for two days i don't know i find it funny plus there's agent doyle played by alex cox the writer and director of repo man so i'm excited to see him here so i I find some of those scenes funny this movie does have sort of a repo man vibe in the road trip and some of the craziness oh yeah that's why he's here Yeah, I do feel like they're taking from all of these indie stars that they've got. They may not be super famous, but they're using their celebrity or their notoriety well. My complaint here is that all the time we spend with Woody, 
really does feel wasteful. He has a continuing series of partners. You know, he had some people who were going with him and they foolishly run out with no cover to shoot at Romeo and his partners die. And then he's got this other kid he's doing a stakeout with in the car and just saying mean things while the kid has his headphones in. The characters come and go too often for me to care about any of them. The only thing that I found funny is when we find out that Woody is as deranged as everybody else there when he asks what's red, white, and goes 60 miles an hour. Yeah, I agree. That was a nice moment because he seems so square that you wouldn't imagine him telling such an off-color joke. But, you know, he's, he's up for it. You know, if he's tracking a truck full of refrigerated fetuses... He's going to tell a baby in a blender joke. And I remember that from the playground. I had forgotten it, but (laughs) there's like a whole book of dead baby jokes. That was a playground joke? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I don't know what that was about. These days you'd get like sent to therapy and expelled for it, maybe even prison. (laughs) But back then, it was good, clean fun. It seemed like it at the time. I guess uh, like a lot of bad things that you do in your youth. It it was fun while it lasted. But I guess it doesn't have a lot of payoff is exactly how you're right in that, Arnie. It's not that these are bad. It's not like we can't find enjoyment. It's just that it doesn't seem to matter all that much when the movie is called Perdita Durango and we're really wanting to find out how they're going to get these fetuses there and if they're going to get whacked when they get there. We, we see that Santos has told Cousin Reggie that you get to keep the money, but you got to put down your cousin. And one of the big changes that is made in the longer European cuts and any of the American ones is that they didn't have the right. Burt Lancaster, the star of Vera Cruz, a 1954 <laughs> Western, would not give them the rights to use the likeness for himself. But they weave throughout this movie that love for that old Western and Reggie and Romeo. That they are, in fact, Gary Cooper and Burt Lancaster in this story. And that comes all the way to the climax. At the very end, they literally cut the footage from Vera Cruz over these characters so that, you know, they're playing off of their Hollywood remembrance. And without that footage, it's just a lot shorter movie. The American versions just didn't get to have that footage or make those parallels. Yeah, there, there's just a drop, like, flashback where Romeo's remembering, oh, yeah, the first movie I saw, Vera Cruz with Burt Lancaster. And then, like... Yeah, they can show images from the movie, but they can't show the characters, the main characters. But then it never really comes up again. It, it is a weird little moment. It does in the real cut. There's just so many of those flashbacks that don't mean anything, that... Sometimes they're funny and diverting and remind me of Crispin Glover. Other times, are they supposed to endear me to Romeo when he's reading his grandmother's letter while he's off in the war? I mean, it's just, it's not very satisfying in that way. Yeah, some are better than others. And someone like Tarantino would make every flashback work, or most of them. There was that Christopher Walken watch one I didn't like from Pulp Fiction. But yeah, most of the time, Tarantino has payoff if he's going to jump around in time. And here, I feel like sometimes you just kind of shrug. Yeah, I think that if every flashback was a chance for a character to shine, I mean, I think that... 
the crazy guy who killed Perdita's sister. We get a couple more flashbacks to him. He is crazy and ridiculous, and when he blows his own head off, kind of interesting. And if we had him and, like, Crispin Glover-like, and each flashback has some crazy fucking thing, some funny, some violent, some sexy, but all crazy, I'd like him a lot more than just... Why are you telling me these stories? It's like sitting with my grandpa here, Romeo. Well, that is, I think, inherent with the source material. There is just a lot of filler or the poetry of common life, however you want to classify it. There feels like a lot of stuff that wouldn't make its way into a normal crime film. And I find it distracting many times when it should be amusing. I reiterate, it feels like this movie was written by a novelist, not a screenwriter. And, and oddly enough, I feel like the one through line in this film is Estelle's dad. Like, again, we see him early on in the film, and he's like, you gotta be in control of everything. You gotta control the situation. And then later, Dumas will run across him hunting for his daughter on a plane, and he's like, you can't control anything, you know, as these themes are developing. And, and then, at this point in Arizona, he's like, found his daughter walking across the street to go get her and gets hit in the and flips in the most cartoonish way like does like three flips and smacks on the road and he's dead and you know someone they make comment like you you can't take your eye off anything like i feel like weirdly estelle's dad is the greek chorus of this film <laughs> yeah that's where i was surprised he died because gandolfini had similar hits and got up and is like don't touch me and this guy's dead and i'm enjoying this that is so much of the book, though. I want to say, I can't tell you how many times in any of the Sailor and Lula books, a character just randomly dies by something you didn't see coming that hadn't been introduced or set up at all, that just all of a sudden some crazy guy from the forest come out and, and, and shoots you, and that's the end. I think that is a point that Barry Gifford is trying to make, that by not having control, that just it is in God's hands, whether you believe it, whatever God you believe in, that fate controls so much of us that no matter what you're planning, something can upend it and send you to heaven or hell. And while I understand that as a point, you know, rules of storytelling are such that we don't usually like too much of that kind of dusex machina. We don't usually like to see uh, major storylines ended on a random tangent. But here for this character, for Herb, I thought it was funny. I thought it was funny that he was thought he was going to see his daughter and she will get away. She will live. And by him putting himself in the path of trying to be the hero, he will die. At least the movie is more fun for me when it focuses, again, on the core four characters. And I'm actually in suspense when this ending comes. I mean, we know, we know that Santos has Reggie there to kill Romeo, but Romeo gets tipped off as well. And I'm really wondering how is this going to happen? And how's a one-armed ex-Marine going to help him <laughs> when he's walking into this trap? That's what I don't get is they go to this one-armed Marine that he knew. You got Perita. The movie's named after her in some versions. She's badass. Why wouldn't you take her? I guess he doesn't want her to die. And he feels like it could go wrong. So he's going to take a one-armed man. Yeah, he did play with the tarot and he believes it. I believe he believes by pulling that skull card that he may not make it out or that there will be something uh, fatal happening. So yeah, it has to be love, right? That he didn't want to endanger her, leaves her with the kids, brings his Marine friend who has seen action before. And yeah, I guess that that is another sign that again, these characters do have heart. They eat hearts, 
but they also have <laughs> hearts. And I don't know. I I guess you have to do that. But it would be interesting to see if they could have made amoral lovers. Like, really, like, even Natural Born Killers, I feel like they also wimped out. Yeah, they they have a family at the end of that movie. Yeah, they, they everyone in the end, in order to sell the concept to, to people, sociopathic uh, lovers have to, yeah, they have to do something sweet for each other. They have to be sentimental or romantic in some way in order for it to translate for the audience. Naughty girls need love too. But I thought that's how this movie was going to end. I mean, I really figured that they would get out of it. I mean, I'm used to Tarantino and I think that's where my mindset is, is in the, in his movie, look at true romance you know they may suffer a little bit at the end but they're going to go off together and here i did not expect what happens i mean romeo goes and confronts reggie the one-armed man is killed and who cares and reggie pulls a gun and romeo gives this long speech about you don't have to do this you're my cousin you were like my brother all of this and he turns and walks away i was shocked that Reggie's leg, I mean, his hand's wavering, he's quivering, it's not like he's just fuck you, but he pulls the trigger and kills his cousin. Yeah, that was a surprise, and I, even though it played similar in the, in the novel, I I wasn't sure they were going to follow that pattern, because the actor that was playing Reggie had so much clear admiration that it wasn't easy for him. On the page, sometimes characters do random violent things, the way that it read, it just felt like it didn't mean anything. But by watching the scene constructed the way that it was, it's a terrible way to take someone out, shooting him in the back. And the fact that he's doing it to his lifelong friend. If we had had more of those Vera Cruz flashback scenes and even built that up more, I think it would be very impacting. But even as it is, I agree. I I knew what they were doing when Perdita finally broke in, though. Obviously, Romeo... He's okay with dying. He even made a, a, a statement at some point in the movie that, you know, this is the best way to die in a, in a gunfight, to go out in a blaze of glory. But Perdita is going to get the revenge. She's going to be able to kill Reggie here. But the ending is kind of anticlimactic because she kills Reggie right away and then just kind of stands there as the cops run in and she runs out. Cops come in and they're like, oh, they're all dead. I love how Dumas, though, like mocks her. He sees her and just knowingly like, yeah, we got him. Yeah, but keep in mind, again, there are those cut scenes where literally we have Bardem lying on the floor looking up at Gary Cooper from Vera Cruz and that morphs into Gandolfini that there is a whole lot of drama between these two. It's several minutes that bring in and tie to that old movie and their current showdown situation. So it feels abridged because it is. That we should have lingered more and this should have had more dramatic impact. The fact is, longer cuts do. Okay, I, that would have really helped here because I was left with a little bit of, that's it? I mean, it's kind of sad and I do like the tourist scenery of Vegas. It's making me want to go back. I mean, we saw the truck driving through the city and then we see her walking through the strip, but... Old Vegas, though. You can't go to this Vegas. Yeah, Fremont Street. I mean, some of this stuff is gone. It was it was interesting just as a timepiece. I mean, this was before many of the current casinos were built. Even when they were on the main strip, there was no Paris. There was no Bellagio. There was no Egypt. Like, everything that you associate wasn't there. True. So I just enjoyed the scenery, but I did feel 
like this ending in the cut I watched. It was a little bit frustrating. Yeah, to me, it ends up being just a pulp movie. I'm I'm trying to figure out, okay, what did Perdita, again, who this movie is named after, what did she learn from this? Oh, she's lonely at the end. I don't know. Is this, she was lonely at the beginning. She had lost her sister. Now she lost Romeo. Like, am I supposed to get some kind of morality tale that if you're a bad person, you're going to end up lonely? Like, I do feel like this ends up, again, not rich in themes is how I'd, I'd wrap it up. Yeah. I'm not sure that you would feel different if you read the story, but the difference is, at the end, she moves on without any feeling, that she just goes and picks her next mark, and we see her, maybe she feels sad, it might come through in a line or two, but here they linger on it, it's melodramatic, by being a visual medium, storytelling, we're seeing tears, they're selling it in a way that is just much heavier, and, uh, you know, it's got the Screaming Jay Hawkins torch song, too. So I guess that's not all bad. Well, is the movie all bad? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend A Dance with the Devil or Perdita Durango or both? Jacob. Yeah, you know what? I ended up enjoying this one more than I thought. Not that that makes this a great film. Again, I think the first half is much stronger than the second half where it goes on the road and kind of loses focus. And I'm just waiting for that climax in Vegas, more or less. <laughs> What's going to happen to those fetuses when they get delivered? But you know what? I, I look at this and as a natural born killers film, well, I liked it more than natural born killers. This is not first rate Tarantino, but better than what Oliver Stone did with that film. I, I don't, you know, this might be low in themes and, and, and you know, commentary, but it, it doesn't feel oversaturated and confusing like that film. I like this couple more than Woody Harrelson and, and Juliet Lewis. And, and you know what? I prefer this more than Wild at Heart. I, I do think this is a more focused movie and it's better for that. It, it's, it's dark. It's violent. It, it, gets into some heavy stuff that may turn some viewers off. But if you want a pulp criminal road trip adventure, yeah, I'd recommend Perita Durango or Dance with the Devil, whatever you want to call it. Stuart. Yeah, it's funny how time influences things. I mean, I, I said when I reviewed Wild at Heart, the best thing it had going for it was it was ahead of the curve on this kind of movie. And boy, if I had seen this, this movie, Perita Durango in 1997, I would have said what everyone said. Tarantino ripoff, why bother? I've seen it a million times. But it is the better movie. I mean, it is the better made movie. And it's kind of sad. Alex did uh, Iglesias. It's kind of too bad that this director didn't go on and have a Hollywood career. I know that after this movie, he was offered Alien Resurrection. He was offered that Banderas Zorro movie. And he had such a bad time with this. That he said, no, I'm going back to Spain, I'm making movies my way, and has had a very successful career, but I think one that international audiences haven't been able to enjoy as much. They're just smaller films, and I would like to see more from this director, maybe working with better material. This says B-movie spunk, it's better assembled than Wild at Heart, and yeah, I, I had a good enough time. It's not great, it won't change your life, and there are a hundred movies that do this better but I think you can enjoy this one, even if you didn't like Wild at Heart. Well, I'm surprised Wild at Heart got two recommends, and this one's getting three. I didn't like this one as much as Wild at Heart, because I found this film to be even more uneven, and I found all of its side trips to be less fulfilling and less fun. I mean, in the last film, sure, we had our diversions with the Sherilyn Fenn car accident, and Crispin Glover, and a couple others— but here, any time it goes to a flashback, 
I'm often checking out a little bit. But the main plot of the four people on the road and Romeo's big job with the fetuses and the humor and Gandolfini gives a good performance here in a role that I feel could be written better but I like watching him in it we're about two years before Sopranos would premiere and he's showing here that he's got some toughness that will work well for him in the future I had a more fun time watching this than I expected, especially when that shitty-ass title came up and the fact that I wasn't really looking forward to this movie in the first place. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I wish I could have understood it a little better. I wish the audio mix was better. But yeah, if you can find it, and this was a hard one to find. The DVD's out of print here in the States. It took a while to get. But if you can find it, I'd recommend Perdita Durango. No, great. I'm glad that we all found something to enjoy in the movie. I, I wasn't sure. I was. You liked the movie last week so much, Arnie. I was kind of like, hmm, he may not be going for this one. But I do think that it is a much more focused, more enjoyable version of Gifford. But I'm not opposed to more Gifford and Lynch. And we're going to get it in a couple weeks. But first, we have to wrap up the second season of Twin Peaks. Next week on the main feed, we're getting back to the movie that definitely felt like the end of the whole series, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Or at least it may have killed any interest there would be in ending the series. Who killed Laura Palmer? I don't know. Who killed Twin Peaks? Fire Walk With Me. That's how I remember it, at least. We'll see. It's been a while. Well, much like characters in the series, it didn't kill it. It just put it in a coma for 20 years. Yeah, we we found out that, indeed, anything can come back from the Black Lodge, but things get very dark for all of these TV characters. Darker than they ever did on ABC television is the movie next week. And of course, if you want to hear us discuss Now Peaking, it is our donation drive going on right now. It is at NowPeakingPodcast.com, not officially now playing, but come on. I mean, it's the three of us talking about Lynch. It's helping out Now Playing if you want to go and get Now Peaking. It's 99 cents an episode. I mean, you just can't get cheaper than that and there's even a cheaper discount though i guess you can get cheaper because if you get the whole season pass can't get cheaper than that here's the cheaper one (laughs) yes it's it comes to less per episode and we're gonna have a movie donation coming up in a bit but for now head to now peaking catch up with the series and then if you do get the season pass you can join us When it comes back on Showtime, and we're going to be reviewing all the episodes the week they air. Yeah, May 21st, they've announced it's coming to Showtime, and I can't wait. I can't, I don't even know that much about it. I don't need to. I'm just thoroughly excited to get there. But also excited just to see how it's all going to play out here, now peaking for the next week. Hope you can join us. And while we're talking about donations, if you're looking for any of our past donation series like Night of the Living Dead, Exorcist, Aliens, so many we've done, they are all available through our Podbean site. You can get all the details and links directly to those shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. It's in celebration of our 10th anniversary and really a way to say thank you to the listeners who've supported us so far and to give people what they've really demanded for eight years that we open up the vaults we're doing that this year as a trial we want your feedback on how it's going and we hope you enjoy those shows so jacob stewart thank you for joining me until next week don't say a word about this to my mom 
please? Don't be afraid, sailor. I'm wild at heart. If you're truly wild at heart, you'll fight for your dreams. Don't turn away from love, sailor. Don't turn away from love. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's David Lynch Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. I also want to thank you, fellas. You've taught me a valuable lesson in life. Now that you've heard this movie review, head to NowPeakingPodcast.com to hear Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob review every episode of the Twin Peaks TV series. What was that all about? I don't know. And go to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews of all the Twin Peaks related books and audiobooks. Let's go dance some peanut. Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, the James Bond films, and more. That's wrong. It's from Batman. Fuck Batman. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. Yeah, Bobby here is the most exciting item to hit big tuna since the 86 Cyclone sheared the roof off the high school. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. One thing about surviving a big tuna, you gotta have an active sense of humor. <laughs> I'd go the far end of the world for you, baby. You know I would. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Drop a silver dollar through my mail slot. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website. Nowplayingpodcast.com. That kind of money get us a long way down the yellow brick road. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. You make the future so simple and nice. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You are so aware of what goes on with me. I mean, you pay attention. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. See? I knew you had it under control. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. You think of the weirdest damn things I say sometimes, Pam. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Who could find an honest man in Washington? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. All I know for sure is there's more than a few bad ideas running around loose out there. Now Playing is a Inganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Inganza Media Incorporated. I knew I had an important lesson to learn that day.
got enough asshole? Yes, I have. And don't you ever call here again. Yeah, you mentioned Anguish. I watched that film. Uh, that would not endear me to him. I did not have the positive reaction you did. That's not Iglesias. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying that was Iglesias. That was a big uh, Luna. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I find it very interesting that we have Rosie Perez with her career kind of on the way down by this point. I think she was starting to falter with White Man Can't Jump, a movie I like and I like her in it, but... I didn't see much of her after that. What? Falter? She got an Oscar nomination for Fearless. I mean, that was the peak of her. I mean, what was she falling from if not White Men Can't Jump and Fearless? This was this was her heyday. I thought her heyday was really... Well, I guess Training Day was 2001, wasn't it? Training Day? That's a favorite of his. Was she in that? I don't even... I don't think of that as a Rosie Perez movie. Oh, wait, not Training Day. Uh, that's, I got confused with what's her name from Ghost Rider in Training Day. Um, I'm thinking, uh, Eva Mendez. Do the right thing. That was Rosie Perez. Yeah, I got Eva Mendez and Rosie Perez. Oh, okay. Well, very different. All right. Just got all that shit, too. All right. I'll say it this way. <laughs> we getting the bloopers down good. <laughs> Perdido devises a plan that they should cap... Oh, I need to, uh... (laughs) Someone will be revising that plot summary if they haven't already. (laughs) Um, On Wikipedia, let's hit edit. Because she's not Perdito. (laughs) That'd be a boy. Yes, I'm aware how Spanish gender inflection works, despite the fact that some people are trying to uh, make Spanish a neutral language. You gotta put the X at the end. <sighs> That's what they want to do. Yeah, I know. That next is how I... I don't know how you're supposed to say it. That's how I always read it, though. They're trying to make Spanish into French. Perdido or something. I don't know. How do you, how do you pronounce that? Alright. Save changes to Wikipedia, and back to this. <laughs> They begin a sacrifice of Estelle, making Dwayne, making Dwayne, Dwayne watch. That's hard to say. <laughs> All of Santos's men are killed, but Romeo escapes. Dwive it, dwiving. <laughs> in the path of trying to be the hero, he will die. And yeah, Dwayne in the. Go ahead. I was going to move away and get to the. Yeah. Climax. Okay. So was I. Okay. Yeah. At, at least, and, oh, okay. <laughs> but which one of you will do it? <laughs> <laughs>